Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia. In each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Madison Warner, an environmental anthropologist and project manager for the Circularity Informatics Lab at the University of Georgia with me. How are you doing today, Madison? I'm doing really well. Um, I'm recording this podcast out of my hotel room in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and this is my second time back for one of our cat projects. I really like it here. I ate at a really good vegan restaurant last night, so that was nice. Um, Today, we began our first day of community workshops, and I will say I'm a bit nervous for that, but it's honestly just the anticipation that bothers me. I'm always nervous beforehand, and then in the moment, I'm totally fine. And the more experience I get with sharing our data and other presentation type stuff, the more comfortable I become, but it definitely still comes with some nerves. Yeah. Oh, I completely understand that anticipation feel I mean, I still get nervous to talk in front of people, and I've been doing it a really long time. And I do remember when I was really just starting out, I was getting my PhD, and I was talking to a room of, I think, about 400 people, and there was a guy who was in the same session as me, and he was going to speak. And I said something like, I'm really nervous, and he's like, I still get nervous too. And he was, I don't know, you know, 50, 60, something, seemed like a lot older than me, and I was like, wow. Oh, and it made me feel so comfortable to hear that he still got nervous even at that age. And so I don't know, I somehow somehow I did that and kind of been doing it ever since. But I have to say, uh, the more you do it, the easier it is, I guess, um, although I still tend to over prepare. But but during COVID, like the stop of the two years where, I mean, really, we almost didn't even see anyone. We almost didn't leave our house, at least for anything like work presentations or meetings. And um, I got out of practice. And I have to say, I got, I got really, you know, nervous, almost more nervous than I was before, sort of restarting that. So I wanted to tell you about this past weekend, I was on a MacArthur Fellow retreat, and it was absolutely regenerative. (laughs) I did have to talk, I was definitely nervous. But the environment there was really supportive. Everyone was so kind. It it just felt amazing. And I have to say the other fellows that were there were a huge highlight. And so many people working on critical and uncovered social justice issues. Um, You know, the MacArthur Foundation just found people who work on different things, but their brains somehow work the same. So... You know, all these people are making such significant differences in the space that they work in. They're also dedicated. Um, we kind of talked about how in some ways we're a little bit obsessed with our topics, but in a way that I don't, I, it's not unhealthy. It's it's uh, quite the contrary. I think it's in a way that's rather um, inspiring to all of us and taking time to hear from others, relate to others um, in such different fields. Yet, as I said, we were kind of similar in many ways, was quite transformative for me. So I think that you will do wonderfully, Madison, this week at the workshops, and ultimately you're going to feel rewarded by these conversations with the community members um, that we've been working alongside. So can you kind of touch on, you know, why it's important to share 
the data um, with the community members? Yeah, of course. So specifically for this project, sharing data that we've collected thus far is important because these community workshops are ultimately meant to inform a citywide reuse program for um, basically like food plastics or mm -hmm. like alternatives to, to food plastics. So yeah. if we want that program to be well-informed and equitable, it makes sense that sharing the data we've collected so far can help community members basically understand what's going on in terms of how materials are moving through their community and also help develop locally informed interventions. I will say um, <laughs> this project has been something that's kind of helped push me out of my comfort zone a bit. I'm somewhat of a perfectionist. So previously, I only want to share data once everything is tied together and completed and like all wrapped up in a pretty little bow. But I think when you're doing community-based work, it's important that you begin sharing data early and often, and then you can kind of iterate off of that in a way. So for example, today we're sharing data collected from our litter transects and our restaurant and store surveys, which really is only a portion of what we do for CAP, but you can actually tell a pretty compelling story arguing for the importance of reuse just based on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we really hope, I mean, I'm excited about this project because it's reuse, it's prevention of even more use of plastic in the first place. We're not just preventing waste, but preventing even more use and, and production of it. So um, really excited for this work. And I'm glad you can be there to engage with the community. One more reflection on this weekend. Many of us, you know, talked about how we were kind of told our ideas were way outside of boxes, even crazy sometimes. I've been told that no one cared about marine debris in 2001. And I know our guest today has probably felt a little bit of this with her work as she's always pushing boundaries. And I've always cheered for her work, but I know that doing outside the box work can be really hard. Our guest today is Patricia Villarubia Gomez, who's a PhD candidate at the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. I met Patty in Norway in 2016 at a plastic pollution prevention conference. She was interviewing me for research. Uh, it was like a key informant interview, and I love that she was working on plastic pollution and collecting qualitative data. I said yes to talking to her right away. I'd never met her before, and we just had this amazing conversation, and I got really excited about her work. I have been someone cheering for her ever since. So welcome to the show, Patty. Thank you very much, Jenna. And and you are absolutely right. And I felt the warmth of your support since the very beginning, which for me was completely crazy because at that time, my English was not even uh, good. So I was like, how is she going to be so nice when I don't know if she even understands me? <laughs> but it, yeah, thank you very much, Jenna. Oh, it was totally fine. So um, Patty, tell us about your background. Um, what inspired you to do this work and how did it lead to that moment I met you uh, for that interview? And I have to say just your passion and and enthusiasm and dedication came through almost instantly. So that was that was definitely a big part of it. So tell us tell us kind of how you got there. Yeah, so for I think that the beginning of, of why I was interested into plastics, um, it's very cliche. I born I was born by the Mediterranean Sea in, in the south of Spain. And for me the connection to to the ocean it's it's was clear from the very beginning of, of my life. But then I studied environmental science and I did an internship. Uh, a volunteer actually um, taking care of of turtles in a conservation in a conservation camp, 
in Cabo Verde, and this was in 2010, and the amount of plastic that was arriving to this pristine, what we thought that it was pristine, and islands, and, and how, how many uh, turtles came up when they have swallowed plastics or they were injured by plastic, it staggered me. So I really thought that that was the future. That was my future. I had to do something with it, but I didn't know how. And at that point, I did not speak English. Mm. And then the year after, I moved to Sweden to do an Erasmus in 2011. And I came across to this amazing uh, documentary by Five Gires, mm -hmm. one of the first ones they did. Mm -hmm. And I learned about microplastics and plastics in the ocean. And five minutes into that documentary, I, when I saw uh, Anna Cummins going up the, the mast, I was mm. like, that this is the rest of my life. No, no, yeah, there is yeah. no, no questions asked. So that was how I got engaged into the problem and how I saw uh, the, the window of opportunity of getting into it. But it wasn't until 2015 when I could actually do something formal in academia about it. That is when, when I got to the conclusion that another window of opportunity was doing my master thesis on plastics, marine plastics at that time, and planetary boundaries. Yeah. I love that it was, um, well, not only your, the roots of your, you know, childhood and, and where, where you grew up, so place-based, but also a communication piece, a documentary that inspired you. It always, to me, that every time I hear stories like this, it's like, okay, keep doing that communication and outreach because you never know who you're going to touch and how it will inspire them. Patty, you mentioned in 2018, you published a paper on marine plastics as a planetary boundary. Can you tell us a little bit about this paper and how it may have informed the trajectory of your research today? Yes, and, and that paper was based on, or inspired rather, on my master thesis, because the when when I started doing researching about plastics at this global scale and and trying to connect the dots to the planetary boundaries framework, there was not much information published on at scientific uh, in scientific journals. So this is why I decided to to gather the exper the expertise of, and the experiences from a qualitative uh, a qualitative way through the perception of these world leaders, like world researchers. Um, and I, and I was extremely uh, lucky because I, I reached out to, I think it was like at that time, the little pieces and bits that I could see on the, the work that other researchers were doing on communications. And Jenna was obviously one of them. And I sent out like, 30 emails and 18 came back to me saying yes. And I I collected, I pick on their brains for one to two hours, depending how much time they had. And, and they gave me, they were so uh, open and gave me all the information that 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 share, that they share all the information with me. And and yeah, it was amazing. And then I finished my master thesis and that year in 2016, in June 2016, a lot of information started coming in, in publications. So we were like, wait, maybe we can wait a little bit more and transform these interviews, this qualitative data 
on on what they think to actually what are the research published saying mm -hmm. and that will give us also more legitimization on what the things that we're saying on the paper so that's why it took like two years to cook the paper and very soon when I was researching about plastics in the marine environment, I realized that this was a much bigger problem, that if we wanted to connect the dots with planetary boundaries, we went to, we had to go to the whole planet and all the ecosystems and more information through the work of incredible scientists putting their effort, we're coming back. And, and we had information on air, on water, on uh, ground and soil today. So, so this is this is like the bit and pieces of information. I I work on them and and like unify the dots. Yeah, it's amazing that eighteen out of thirty experts were willing to speak with you. Jenna and I sometimes talk about how timing is everything with research papers, and it seems like everything really just came together when it needed to to make an impact. And I completely agree with that. And if you don't mind, I I can share a bit of uh, a bit of this this story because. I think it's just amazing and I'm still yeah overwhelmed with the with the um the welcome that I that I had so in 2015 because that's when I started I contacted these researchers and I didn't know anyone again my English was quite bad at that time I was learning and then this year I contacted to do the second part well like a three a third part of this work because i have been working on this since since then and i contacted my like the people that i see doing change in the in the field of plastic pollution and i contacted different people like very intersectional the very interdisciplinary group of ex experts and, and transdisciplinary and i wrote to 25 people experts that are extremely busy and 23 of them said yes. So it's amazing. And I think that this, this also shows how, how much things can change like while being a student and how incredibly engaged these researchers on this field are and how much they want to go beyond what we know and, and explore new things and the openness of also of them to mix and listen to each other. I think that that's, that's extremely beautiful. Uh, and I'm so honored and excited to be one of those people in that group. So uh, thank you for that second invite. But Patty, you're yeah, you are like this little spark. And so you you have this amazing way of bringing people together. Thanks. <laughs> um, so you just recently passed a big hurdle, I believe, in your PhD process, right? Uh, passing into candidacy. How has your PhD experience been? And, you know, do you have any advice for others wishing to pursue a PhD? Well, I think that the advice I have for others is the one I have to follow myself mm. still. And it's um, try to think that I'm not my PhD and not my work does not reflect on who I am at a, at a personal level because being passionate is just what you were saying before Jenna like being passionate about what you do it's amazing and it's a joy to be able and I'm extremely grateful but at the same time I think about this 24 hours every day mm -hmm. every like yep for the past I don't know eight nine years so it it also makes me feel tired and um, so 
take a break, like do as much as you can within the hours that you have to do, but take a break, rest. And because if, if we work too much, our brains cannot keep going mm -hmm. to the to the level that that it's saying. Um, so for me, it's that and yeah, whatever you do, do it with with love and passion. And I think that it's uh, it, it's it's going to turn well. And there is nothing perfect. I have to learn that. There is no perfection. Perfection is not a thing. We do good enough. That's yeah. that's what we have to achieve for. Good enough. And Yeah, I saw you smile when Madison said she she likes it to be perfect before presenting, you know, the data and I think it, yeah, it's it's never going to be perfect. And it's hard. I love how you call it. We're talking about the paper, right? Like it had to cook for a while and also there's information coming in the space all the time, you know, so like you could wait, you're like, wait, I could add this to the paper or like this is coming up, but you have to at least at some point get this, you know, get the information out that you have found. Um, and also appreciate you saying take breaks. I constantly remind myself and my team to do that, do whatever is regenerative. You can't be creative uh without having that brain space and, you know, doing something else that is that is different um, to spark, the, you know, keep that spark of creativity going. So thank you for all of that perspective. Also, if I can, if I can add, and, mm -hmm. and this is also what Madison uh, mentioned before, like it took five years between, five or six years between I finished my master thesis and find, like to be able to find um, uh, funding for my PhD, it was five years. So I, at some point I was extremely bitter because I was like, I know I have all this knowledge. I have all this passion. I have all mm. this energy and, and I know I can make it, but there is no organization that wants to give us funding. But thinking now in retrospective, the kind of PhD that I'm doing right now would not have been possible mm -hmm. five years ago. So I do believe that it has it had like this past few past the, those five years were just horrible and extremely hard because I was a waiter a waitress mm. a, a nanny I, I was doing everything possible that I could do, um, but now I am where I have to be, and those years were like the cooking time, and now it's when when we really can thrive and and pull up these ideas. Mm -hmm. So also like everything has its time, just breathe <laughs> right oh that's beautiful that's a great point patty i i'm still trying to remind myself to breathe sometimes no me too me too like again <laughs> this is what i think but i also like i say it out loud so my brain my brain listens to it <laughs> right so patty when i was in the process of getting my master's degree in environmental anthropology i had a few people tell me that the work that i doing was not quote, anthropological enough, because I, I guess because I was working with engineers on issues related to plastic, and I wasn't conducting ethnography just due to budget and time restrictions on our project. And obviously, with anthropology, there's a huge bias towards ethnography and like long, long term engagement. Um, so what type of role do you feel qualitative data has in our understanding of marine plastics and environmental issues more broadly? Yeah, I think that we we tend to think, and I'm I'm very sorry that you are that you were 
receiving these kind of comments because they are, I think that they are from people that maybe are uninformed or they still have to have their minds a little bit more open because to me, science is just evolution. It's like pushing the boundaries of what we know. And to be able to that, we have to be curious and experiment and be transformative, right? And if we say no to things, we will never, if we are purists, if there is such a thing, we will never advance. And all the frameworks are there to be transformed and advanced. To me, as a sustainability researcher, I'm in between, I did environmental science and I do resilience and system and ecological, social ecological systems. So I'm not a quantitative and I'm not a qualitative. I'm everything kind of in between. And I try to put knowledge together and tidy it up. And I receive many comments of like, yeah, but what you, what are you? Are you a quan, a qual? These two different things are not like how. And to me, it's like, yeah, it's very complicated. It's a lot of work, but quantitative and qualitative are not, it, they don't exclude each other. They are, they are complementary to each other. And when there is no, so for instance, numbers are there because a lot of time has passed and frameworks have been developed, methodologies have been developed, but the impacts of what we are suffering right now about plastic pollution, they were there already. And the, the people suffering and the, and the ecosystem suffering, the consequences have been there the whole time. Narratives, knowledge, it's been there. It, it's only that people thinking that quantitative justifies that it's a reality. I think that that is a really big mistake. I think that we have to complement the information with one another because otherwise we are just delaying problems to pile up um, over the future. And yeah, I, I just before the thinking about this before coming into the podcast, I I I thought about this paper written by some of my colleagues here at at SRC. It's called the Undisciplinary Journey, and it's about sustainability students, PhD students having to deal with all of this. So if other students or people curious about this, uh, I I I send the, the information to Jenna and, and it would be great because it explains a lot of how science and sustainability science is evol evolving uh, mm -hmm. right now. And I think that it, it's very necessary to see, to get outside the box and because things are changing. Some people want it or not, they are changing and they have to change to be more inclusive, to be more diverse, to hear other people's stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And going back to what you said about people wanting you to put yourself in a box, I feel like for me, at least, working across disciplines has granted me a lot of freedom. Um, and I will say, just like on a personal level, I generally don't like having to put myself in a box for anyone else's comfort or peace of mind. <laughs> um, and it seems like you may professionally feel a similar way, like having all of these disciplinary divides just is not that helpful when trying to solve for these large, complex issues. Yeah, and it comes also to the point of who decides that this is the right way, who decides that this is the, the, the information that is needed and it's, it's great and it's, it's, it's the information. Because normally the people who make those decisions is the people that have been in power for the longest. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. doesn't mean that they are completely right. And excluding other people's uh, knowledge is also wrong. Um, so, so I think that it it's making. Yeah, I don't know. I think that I think that I I I very much prefer having. If you want to put me in a box, put me in a box that is extremely big because I want to talk to everyone, and that will be my humongous. Uh, I don't know if that is even a word in English, but mm -hmm. a big, big box where I can do I can do and explore uh, as I want within, um, yeah, within what I think is right and listening to as much as many people I I can. Mm -hmm. uh, you touch on a really important point that I think uh, is a goal of ours. I mean, and also I couldn't feel more strongly about combining quantitative and qualitative methods and just that mix of all the things you were talking about and listening to the voices, but disrupting that power dynamic. I mean, you're, you're, I just want to echo those words again. You said, if, if we listen to the people who say this is the data that is important only, and those that are in power and have been in power, we won't hear all of the voices of people that have perspective that is just as important. Um, so I don't know, maybe speaking of that, uh, power dynamic. I know you're headed to the Inc. to the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee um, happening starting this later this week um, into next week. And you are very interested in this process, participating in the treaty process. I think I heard you mention this might also feed into some of your research. So please elaborate on that. Um, but first, I kind of wanted to ask, did you think we would get to this moment of a global discussion um, for this legally binding agreement and then, you know, maybe why you think this is so important So because you're engaging heavily and, and looking at this for your research too. But did you think we would get here? I think that this, this is a really good question and at the same time it's a really complicated question mm -hmm. because I do think, I, I do have the hope that we're going to get to a legally binding agreement. What I'm not sure is what would be the the caveat of those legally binding agreements. And I think that that will depend very much on not only the information that we're sharing uh, as a member of the, of the scientist coalition, we are trying to do our best to go and present independent and robust science and other types of, of, of knowledge with the collaboration collaboration of, of other uh, rightful knowledge owners. Mm -hmm. But it's also it also has to come from the willingness of changing things. And that willingness come not only from a political level, but also from the business and the companies. And many of them are showing a great interest in getting getting better and evolving. But we are also seeing the opposite. Yeah. And it's very, like, we're all on this. We have the impact of plastics pollution, like, in us, in our bodies, in our ecosystems. And we all will be better off if we have a strong and effective uh, treaty. And, and saying this, I think that it's also very important just because this is one of the main things that I want to convey for the treaty, we need to change the definition of plastics pollution. Plastics pollution doesn't equal waste. Right. Plastic pollution 
includes the 13,000 different chemicals that are, are used to make plastics from, from which only 1% are regulated. And there are many of them that are safe, but there are also many, like a few thousand that are not or are hazardous and the, or that we don't even know what happened at, at an ecotoxicological eco level. So changing this definition of what is plastics pollution, it's very important. And what I'm seeing right now is that we keep the narrative of plastic is waste mm. and it's not. It's much more than that. It's a system problem. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And plastic pollution starts at production. Exactly. Not when it's created into a waste. So um, so absolutely, I think that's absolutely critical to this process. And the impacts of this production, it doesn't own, is not only the emissions of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, it also has to come from the acknowledgement that people are suffering, people like not only their land is taken out, um, the health of these people, the health of the environment. So it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. And remember that ninety nine percent of plastics are made virgin plastics are made from fossil fuels, right? Yep. So refining oil or natural gas. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And those facilities are yeah. an environmental justice issue. Patty, you just touched on the idea of how our understanding of quote-unquote plastic pollution or plastic waste may be limiting. As both a researcher and an activist, you've done a lot of scientific communications. How does being a researcher inform your activism and vice versa? So this is actually, uh, um, in, in Spanish, we would say, me voy a meter en un jardín, which is like, I think I'm I'm going to have a big mouth and <laughs> and it's 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 I don't know how I'm going to be able to get out of it but I will I will just jump in because that's the way I am. I think that just for the same reason that I started researching about plastics pollution which is because researchers and people that were very well informed were brave enough to communicate what they knew that is what I'm trying to do as well for what I do in my PhD. Because I have been in many situations where people that did have a very limited knowledge occupied very big spaces and people were listening to them and they were very, very wrong. Like not, I'm saying wrong is because they were wrong. No, it's because they didn't know. It's because they were wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and at some point I was like, well, I think that I kind of have like more knowledge than this person. So I think that I will start to have to speak a little bit more loud. And I actually don't like to be seen. I'm 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 very social, but like an introvert at the same time. And but it's like not sharing the information that we have right now. I think that it's more dangerous than me exposing myself into situations that I'm not comfortable with. And what I said about like that this is a difficult question is not is not only because we put ourselves in front of people and talk but like this label of being an activist in science or in academia it's very complex and is not well seen by many and i myself struggle with calling me myself an activist because 
what I do is that I share the information that I know and I have researched and it's and like the best available information at the scientific level that we have. But at the same time, we have so many people that they are putting their lives on the line to share, not to share the information they have, but like it's because they are suffering the consequences and they're, many of them are losing their lives. So to me, like, am I an activist? Mm, I mean, I do it from the, I talk about all of this from the comfort of Sweden or Spain. So I don't know, it's like, and the word activist is also like not well taken in academia because we should not be prescriptive into what we do. But in face, like in the face of climate change and plastic is very connected to climate change. How could I have all this information and not share it? I'm a scientist who has information and this information is leading to great impacts on the environment and the health of human beings. How can I not talk about this? Mm -hmm. So if that makes me an activist, I have no idea, but I do want to share the information I have because I think it's, it's, it's very important that we know. And people that hold the power right now is not going to say the kind of things that we say from our research because it doesn't, it collides with, directly collides with their interests. You also already kind of touched on you know, taking, you know, when, with your PhD advice, taking time, but what, what do you, can you describe a little bit more, like what fuels you and do you ever feel like you might burn out and then how, you know, give us some of the examples of how you, how you mitigate that. You mentioned that's important to mitigate, but um, you know, what, what, what works for you? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm a, I, I'm kind of an open book. Just on fr on on Thursday, we have a a red day here. It was, it it was like a long weekend. I was I was on the bridge of the of the brink of of not being well. So I spent literally the whole day sleeping because yeah. I couldn't take it anymore. I have been working, I have been working like 10, 12, 13 hours for the last, I don't know how many weeks because like. It seems like work never goes down, but it always goes up. Mm. And and sometimes I forget that I cannot be, I cannot do as much as I want because my head is not a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. It's just like, uh, okay. Bro. You're human. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, I, I'm not the best to give, to give advice on how to take care of oneself. Um, but being with friends, being in nature, that's what refill my, my churches and being, being around people that, that really loves you and, and friends when you are an immigrant, as I, as I am, I don't have my family around. I have friends that tell me like, buddy, your eyes start twitching, please, freaking, <laughs> please stop. Let, let's go, let's go for a walk, you yeah. know, and do sports. I dance, I do, I cook, I don't know. Oh, fun. Um, what kind of dancing? Just like going uh, out, whatever. going out dancing. Whatever. I try, I try whatever that it's rhythmic and somebody, somebody can show me. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I try. I'm not saying I'm, I'm good at it. I'm just trying. Yes. I would say that would, that would be me too. I love, I love dancing. Um, yeah. I'm glad you have that support group around you and you are aware enough to yeah. know that maybe you're not the best person to notice when you yeah. need to take a break, but having important to have people around you who can help you recognize that point. So, you know, that's 
that's an actually amazing advice, I think. For me, the fact that I have to take a whole day sleeping is a sign that I, I did not take care of myself right. properly. But the fact that I allow myself to just sleep that that is also that it's also a, a, a positive sign that I did not lose my head right. completely yet. Right. Because I like recognizing recognizing that that you need it and listening to your body. I think that that is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And prioritizing your sleep and your good eating behavior. I think that that would be and do sports. I think that that is that is the best. Yep. And this is what my therapist told me. <laughs> <laughs> Therapists are also, also good. Yes. My dad yeah, that's used to always tell me sleep was so important, like as a kid all the time. And I was like, what? I mean, I, I still work late and stay up late. And he would just always say sleep is so important. And I think maybe now at almost or getting near 50, I'm like, I do realize it, it really like the next day, it impacts how you feel really how much sleep that you get and and clearly it's a it's a health issue so i think we don't appreciate sleep enough so okay so for our final thought patty part of the reason we bring guests on is to hear different perspectives which i know you appreciate and we know that these big systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representation, um, different perspectives and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question of every guest. So in terms of what we've been discussing today, what voice is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And as the second part to this question, how do we make that happen? For this one, I, I think that me also for for what I said before that mm. I, I I had to really put time and, and move countries uh, to learn English in order to be at an, excel, an, an excellency research center for science. It required me to move to another country, really learn English and mm. be able to do science with that. I think that the English and science being so anglophone, it's taken away that the voices of researchers around the world hmm. that may have better information or like very accurate information um, is, is not shared because hmm. it's not in English. And if, if they want it to be in English, they have to pay for translation. And, and I think that that is, that is a way of repressing diversity very, very much. Hmm. And we are seeing this on the treaty, right? Um, in meetings that they are holding, UNEP is holding before. In many of them, there is no, there is no translation mm -hmm. into Spanish, French, or other UNEP languages, let alone uh, other other languages. So for me, that would be one. Everything that is not in English is very restricted, which is losing already a lot of information there, and creating a lot of uh, problems, in my opinion. And the other one, I would like to see scientists also being able to be part of the process in their own right. Right now, uh, for and, and this is specific for INC, mm -hmm. right now scientists cannot really get accreditation by their own. We have, because universities cannot be accredited majorly. And then, and, and that puts us in a, in a place where we have to ask other organization if they have spot, spots free 
in their in their organizations to sponsor us. So that's how we get accreditation. Right. And now we don't even know if we will be able to enter the, the UNESCO building because only one participant per organi accredited organization can enter. So I'm very afraid that independent and robust science is not going to be in the building because we cannot enter. And finally, I would also like to say that participating into these big spaces and these high level spaces are very expensive mm -hmm. and scientists and other representatives from uh, civil society organizations do not have this money. And I'm extremely uh, privileged that an organization, it, it's called Ocean Born Foundation, uh, sponsor my fieldwork to INC because otherwise it would be impossible for me to attend these meetings. So also like having more funding help and and I'm not saying to me because I'm very privileged in the north, like working in the north of in the north of Europe. Mm -hmm. But this also comes to many people, like finding funding. It's really hard, and that's also a problem within voices being represented at being at the table. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree with all of that, and I really, really appreciate you bringing up the English speaking. Uh, limiting the voices that are there. And I would love to think about ways that we can we can change that. Yeah, the, I ran into the same thing. I, I tried to get accredited and they were like, nope, universities cannot because I didn't really, you know, then you have to pick an organization that does sponsor you, but you're associated with that organization as opposed to kind of being, feeling independent, you know? And that was... And so I didn't really like that. And then the expense part, I'm I'm just astounded. I mean, price, travel prices are like three times what they used to be before COVID. And I'm surprised that so many people can get there because I do think that's got to be limiting a lot of people. And Madison, mm -hmm. anything, anything else from your side? Thank you so much for sharing your background, experience, and perspectives, Patty. It's been truly such a joy getting to know you a little bit more. And we're really excited to witness everything else that you do in the future. Hopefully the future brings more collaborations with, with Jenna and, and, and other experts because it's it's a real joy to to learn from from and to be to be mentored by such a great um, group of, mm. of professionals and experts. So yeah. Oh well I wanna thank you for being so creative and, and groundbreaking in this space, so passionate about your work, making sure you get some breaks and sleep. Uh, thank you so much again for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you to all our listeners for taking time out of your day to join us on the AquaThread.